Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Martin Clifton. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Chapter 1 Along this particular stretch of line no express had ever passed. All the trains, the few that there were, stopped at all the stations. Dennis knew the names of those stations by heart. Bowl, Tritton, Spavin Delaware, Nipswich for Timpany, West Bowlby, and, finally, Camlet on the Water. Camlet was where he always got out, leaving the train to creep indolently onward, goodness only knew whither, into the green heart of England. They were snorting out of West Bowlby now. It was the next station, thank heaven. Dennis took his chattels off the rack and piled them neatly in the corner opposite his own. A futile proceeding, but one must have something to do. When he had finished, he sank back into his seat and closed his eyes. It was extremely hot. Oh, this journey! It was two hours cut clean out of his life, two hours in which he might have done so much, so much, written the perfect poem, for example, or read the one illuminating book, instead of which his gorge rose at the smell of the dusty cushions against which he was leaning. Two hours, one hundred and twenty minutes, anything might be done in that time, anything, nothing. Oh, he had had hundreds of hours, and what had he done with them? Wasted them, spilt the precious minutes as though his reservoir were inexhaustible. Dennis groaned in the spirit, condemned himself utterly with all his works. What right had he to sit in the sunshine, to occupy corner seats in third-class carriages, to be alive? None, none, none. Misery and a nameless nostalgic distress possessed him. He was twenty-three, and, oh, so agonizingly conscious of the fact. The train came bumpingly to a halt. Here was Camlet at last. Dennis jumped up, crammed his hat over his eyes, deranged his pile of baggage, leaned out of the window and shouted for a porter, seized a bag in either hand, and had to put them down again in order to open the door. When, at last, he had safely bundled himself and his baggage onto the platform, he ran up the train toward the van. "'A bicycle, a bicycle!' he said breathlessly to the guard. He felt himself a man of action. The guard paid no attention, but continued methodically to hand out, one by one, the packages labelled to Camlet. "'A bicycle,' Dennis repeated, "'a green machine, cross-framed, name of Stone, S-T-O-N-E.' "'All in good time, sir,' said the guard soothingly. He was a large, stately man with a naval beard. One pictured him at home, drinking tea, surrounded by a numerous family. It was in that tone that he must have spoken to his children when they were tiresome. All in good time, sir. Dennis's man of action collapsed, punctured. He left his luggage to be called for later, and pushed off on his bicycle. 
He always took his bicycle when he went into the country. It was part of the theory of exercise. One day one would get up at six o'clock and pedal away to Kenilworth or Stratford-on-Avon, anywhere, and within a radius of twenty miles there were always Norman churches and Tudor mansions to be seen in the course of an afternoon's excursion. Somehow they never did get seen, but all the same it was nice to feel that the bicycle was there, and that one fine morning one really might get up at six. Once at the top of the long hill which led up from Camlet Station, he felt his spirits mounting. The world, he found, was good. The faraway blue hills, the harvests whitening on the slopes of the ridge, along which his road led him, the treeless skylines that changed as he moved, yes, they were all good. He was overcome by the beauty of those deeply embayed coombs, scooped in the flanks of the ridge beneath him. Curves, curves! He repeated the word slowly, trying, as he did, to find some term in which to give expression to his appreciation. Curves! No, that was inadequate. He made a gesture with his hand as though to scoop the achieved expression out of the air, and almost fell off his bicycle. What was the word to describe the curves of those little valleys? They were as fine as the lines of a human body. They were informed with the subtlety of art. Galbe. That was a good word, but it was French. Le galbe et vase de ses anges. Had one ever read a French novel in which that phrase didn't occur? Some day he would compile a dictionary for the use of novelists. Galbe, gonfle, goulou. Parfum, pau, pervers, potel, pudeur. Vertu, volupte. But he really must find that word, curves, curves. Those little valleys had the lines of a cup moulded round a woman's breast. They seemed the dinted imprints of some huge divine body that had rested on these hills. Cumbrous locutions, these. But through them he seemed to be getting nearer to what he wanted. Dinted, dimpled, wimpled, his mind wandered down echoing corridors of assonance and alliteration, ever further and further from the point. He was enamoured with the beauty of words. Becoming once more aware of the outer world, he found himself on the crest of a descent. The road plunged down, steep and straight, into a considerable valley. There, on the opposite slope, a little higher up the valley, stood Crome, his destination. He put on his brakes. This view of Crome was pleasant to linger over. The façade, with its three projecting towers, rose precipitously from among the dark trees of the garden. The house basked in full sunlight. The old brick rosily glowed. How ripe and rich it was! How superbly mellow! And at the same time, how austere! The hill was becoming steeper and steeper. He was gaining speed in spite of his brakes. He loosed his grip of the levers, and in a moment was rushing headlong down. Five minutes later he was passing through the gate of the great courtyard. The front door stood hospitably open. He left his bicycle leaning against the wall and walked in. He would take them by surprise. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 2 He took nobody by surprise. There was nobody to take. All was quiet. Dennis wandered from room to empty room, looking with pleasure at the familiar pictures and furniture, at all the little untidy signs of life that lay scattered here and there. 
He was rather glad that they were all out. It was amusing to wander through the house as though one were exploring a dead, deserted Pompeii. What sort of life would the excavator reconstruct from these remains? How would he people these empty chambers? There was the long gallery with its rows of respectable and, though of course one couldn't publicly admit it, rather boring Italian primitives, its Chinese sculptures, its unobtrusive, dateless furniture. There was the panelled drawing-room, where the huge, chintz-covered armchair stood, oases of comfort among the austere, flesh-mortifying antiques. There was the morning-room, with its pale lemon walls, its painted Venetian chairs and rococo tables, its mirrors, its modern pictures. There was the library, cool, spacious and dark, book-lined from floor to ceiling, rich in portentous folios. There was the dining-room, solidly, port-winily English, with its great mahogany table, its eighteenth-century chairs and sideboard, its eighteenth-century pictures, family portraits, meticulous animal paintings. What could one reconstruct from such data? There was much of Henry Wimbush in the long gallery and the library, something of Anne, perhaps, in the morning-room. That was all. Among the accumulations of ten generations, the living had left but few traces. Lying on the table in the morning-room, he saw his own book of poems. What tact! He picked it up and opened it. It was what the reviewers call a slim volume. He read at hazard. But silence and the topless dark vault in the lights of Luna Park, and Blackpool from the nightly gloom hollows a bright tumultuous tomb. He put it down again, shook his head, and sighed. What genius I had then, he reflected, echoing the aged Swift. It was nearly six months since the book had been published. He was glad to think he would never write anything of the same sort again. Who could have been reading it, he wondered. Anne, perhaps, he liked to think so. Perhaps, too, she had at last recognised herself in the hamadryad of the poplar sapling, the slim hamadryad whose movements were like the swaying of a young tree in the wind. The woman who was a tree what he had called the poem. He had given her the book when it came out, hoping that the poem would tell her what he hadn't dared to say. She had never referred to it. He shut his eyes and saw a vision of her in a red velvet cloak, swaying into the little restaurant where they sometimes dined together in London, three quarters of an hour late, and he was at his table, haggard with anxiety, irritation, hunger. Oh, she was damnable! It occurred to him that perhaps his hostess might be in her boudoir. It was a possibility. He would go and see. Mrs. Wimbush boudoir was in the central tower on the garden front, a little staircase corkscrewed up to it from the hall. Dennis mounted, tapped at the door. Come in. Ah, she was there. He had rather hoped she wouldn't be. He opened the door. Priscilla Wimbush was lying on the sofa, a blotting pad, rested on her knees, and she was thoughtfully sucking the end of a silver pencil. "'Hello,' she said, looking up. "'I'd forgotten you were coming.' "'Well, here I am, I'm afraid,' said Dennis, deprecatingly. "'I'm awfully sorry.' Mrs. Wimbush laughed. Her voice, her laughter, were deep and masculine. Everything about her was manly. She had a large, square, middle-aged face, with a massive, projecting nose and little greenish eyes. The whole, surmounted by a lofty and elaborate coiffure, of a curiously improbable shade of orange. 
Looking at her, Dennis always thought of Wilkie Bard as the cantatrice. That's why I'm going to sing in opera, sing in opera, sing in opera, opera, opera. Today she was wearing a purple silk dress with a high collar and a row of pearls. The costume, so richly dowagerous, so suggestive of the royal family, made her look more than ever like something on the halls. "'What have you been doing all this time?' she asked. "'Well,' said Dennis, and he hesitated almost voluptuously. He had a tremendously amusing account of London and its doings all ripe and ready in his mind. It would be a pleasure to give it utterance. "'To begin with,' he said. But he was too late. Mrs. Wimbush's question had been what the grammarians call rhetorical. It asked for no answer. It was a little conversational flourish, a gambit in the polite game. "'You find me busy at my horoscopes,' she said, without even being aware that she had interrupted him. A little pained, Dennis decided to reserve his story for more receptive ears. He contented himself, by way of revenge, with saying, "'Oh!' rather icily. "'Did I tell you how I won four hundred on the Grand National this year?' "'Yes,' he replied, still frigid and monosyllabic. She must have told him at least six times. "'Wonderful, isn't it? Everything is in the stars. In the old days, before I had the stars to help me, I used to lose thousands. Now,' she paused an instant, "'well, look at that four hundred on the Grand National. That's the stars.' Dennis would have liked to hear more about the old days, but he was too discreet and, still more, too shy to ask. There had been something of a bust-up, that was all he knew. Old Priscilla, not so old then, of course, and sprightlier, had lost a great deal of money, dropped it in handfuls and hatfuls on every racecourse in the country. She had gambled, too. The number of thousands varied in the different legends, but all put it high. Henry Wimbush was forced to sell some of his primitives, a Tadeo de Pogibonzi, an Amico de Tadeo, and four or five nameless Sienese, to the Americans. There was a crisis. For the first time in his life, Henry asserted himself. And with good effect, it seemed. Priscilla's gay and gadding existence had come to an abrupt end. Nowadays she spent almost all her time at Crome, cultivating a rather ill-defined malady. For consolation she dallied with new thought and the occult. Her passion for racing still possessed her, and Henry, who was a kind-hearted fellow at bottom, allowed her forty pounds a month betting money. Most of Priscilla's days were spent in casting the horoscopes of horses, and she invested her money scientifically, as the stars dictated. She betted on football, too, and had a large notebook in which she registered the horoscopes of all the players in all the teams of the league. The process of balancing the horoscopes of two elevens, one against the other, was a very delicate and difficult one. A match between the Spurs and the Villa entailed a conflict in the heavens so vast and so complicated that it was not to be wondered at if she sometimes made a mistake about the outcome. "'Such a pity you don't believe in these things, Dennis. Such a pity,' said Mrs. Wimbush, in her deep, distinct voice. "'I can't say I feel it so. Ah, that's because you don't know what it's like to have faith. You've no idea how amusing and exciting life becomes when you do believe. All that happens means something. Nothing you do is ever insignificant. It makes life so jolly, you know. Here am I at Crome, dull as ditch-water, you'd think. But no, I don't find it so.' I don't regret the old days a bit. I have the stars. 
she picked up the sheet of paper that was lying on the blotting-pad. Inman's horoscope, she explained. I thought I'd like to have a little fling on the billiards championships this autumn. I have the infinite to keep in tune with. She waved her hand. And then there's the next world, and all the spirits, and one's aura, and Mrs. Eddy saying you're not ill, and the Christian mysteries, and Mrs. Besant. It's all splendid. One's never dull for a moment. I can't think how I used to get on before, in the old days. Pleasure, running about, that's all it was, just running about. Lunch, tea, dinner, theatre, supper every day. It was fun, of course, while it lasted, but there wasn't much left of it afterwards. There's rather a good thing about that in Barbecue Smith's new book. Where is it? She sat up and reached for a book that was lying on the little table by the head of the sofa. Do you know him, by the way? she asked. Who? Mr. Barbecue Smith. Dennis knew of him vaguely. Barbecue Smith was a name in the Sunday papers. He wrote about the conduct of life. He might even be the author of What a Young Girl Ought to Know. No, not personally, he said. I've invited him for next weekend. She turned over the pages of the book. Here's the passage I was thinking of. I marked it. I always mark things I like. Holding the book almost at arm's length, for she was somewhat long-sighted, and making suitable gestures with her free hand, she began to read slowly and dramatically. What are thousand-pound fur coats? What are quarter-million incomes? She looked up from the page with a histrionic movement of the head. Her orange coiffure nodded portentously. Dennis looked at it, fascinated. Was it the real thing, and henna? he wondered, or was it one of those complete transformations one sees in the advertisements? What are thrones and sceptres? The orange transformation, yes, it must be a transformation, bobbed up again. What are the gaieties of the rich, the splendours of the powerful? What is the pride of the great? What are the gaudy pleasures of high society? The voice, which had risen in tone, questioningly from sentence to sentence, dropped suddenly and boomed reply. They are nothing. Vanity. Fluff. Dandelion seed in the wind. Thin vapours of fever. The things that matter happen in the heart. Seen things are sweet, but those unseen are a thousand times more significant. It is the unseen that counts in life. Mrs. Wimbush lowered the book. Beautiful, isn't it? she said. Dennis preferred not to hazard an opinion, but uttered a non-committal, Hmm. Ah, it's a fine book, this a beautiful book, said Priscilla, as she let the pages flick back one by one from under her thumb. And here's the passage about the lotus pool. He compares the soul to a lotus pool, you know. She held up the book again and read, A friend of mine has a lotus pool in his garden. It lies in a little dell, embowered with wild roses and eglantine among which the nightingale pours forth its amorous descant all the summer long. Within the pool the lotuses blossom, and the birds of the air come to drink and bathe themselves in its crystal waters. Ah, that reminds me, Priscilla exclaimed, shutting the book with a clap and uttering her big profound laugh. That reminds me of the things that have been going on in our bathing pool since you were here last. We gave the village people leave to come and bathe here in the evenings. You've no idea of the things that happened. She leaned forward, speaking in a confidential whisper. Every now and then she uttered a deep gurgle of laughter. Mixed bathing. Saw them out of my window. Sent for a pair of field glasses to make sure. No doubt of it. 
the laughter broke out again. Dennis laughed too. Barbecue Smith was tossed on the floor. "'It's time we went to see if tea's ready,' said Priscilla. She hoisted herself up from the sofa and went swishing off across the room, striding beneath the trailing silk. Dennis followed her, faintly humming to himself. "'That's why I'm going to sing in opera, sing in opera, sing in opera, and then the little twiddly bit of accompaniment at the end, rah-rah. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 3 The terrace in front of the house was a long, narrow strip of turf, bounded along its outer edge by a graceful stone balustrade. Two little summer-houses of brick stood at either end. Below the house the ground sloped very steeply away, and the terrace was a remarkably high one. From the balusters to the sloping lawn beneath was a drop of thirty feet. Seen from below, the high, unbroken terrace wall, built like the house itself of brick, had the almost menacing aspect of a fortification, a castle bastion from whose parapet one looked out across airy depths to distances level with the eye. Below, in the foreground, hedged in by solid masses of sculptured yew-trees, lay the stone-brimmed swimming-pool. Beyond it stretched the park, with its massive elms, its green expanses of grass, and, at the bottom of the valley, the gleam of the narrow river. On the farther side of the stream the land rose again in a long slope, chequered with cultivation. Looking up the valley to the right, one saw a line of blue, far-off hills. The tea-table had been planted in the shade of one of the little summer-houses, and the rest of the party was already assembled about it when Dennis and Priscilla made their appearance. Henry Wimbush had begun to pour the tea. He was one of those angelous, unchanging men on the farther side of fifty, who might be thirty, who might be anything. Dennis had known him almost as long as he could remember. In all those years his pale, rather handsome face had never grown any older. It was like the pale grey bowler hat which he always wore, winter and summer, unaging, calm, serenely without expression. Next to him, but separated from him and from the rest of the world by the almost impenetrable barriers of her deafness, sat Jenny Mullion. She was perhaps thirty, had a tilted nose and a pink-and-white complexion, and wore her brown hair plaited and coiled in two lateral buns over her ears. In the secret tower of her deafness she sat apart, looking down at the world through sharply piercing eyes. What did she think of men and women and things? That was something that Dennis had never been able to discover. In her enigmatic remoteness Jenny was a little disquieting. Even now some interior joke seemed to be amusing her, for she was smiling to herself, and her brown eyes were like very bright round marbles. On his other side the serious, moon-like innocence of Mary Bracegirdle's face shone pink and childish. She was nearly twenty-three, but one wouldn't have guessed it. Her short hair, clipped like a page's, hung in a bell of elastic gold about her cheeks. She had large blue china eyes, whose expression was one of ingenuous and often puzzled earnestness. Next to Mary a small gaunt man was sitting, rigid and erect in his chair. 
In appearance, Mr. Scogan was like one of those extinct bird lizards of the tertiary. His nose was beaked, his dark eyes had the shining quickness of a robin's. But there was nothing soft or gracious or feathery about him. The skin of his wrinkled brown face had a dry and scaly look. His hands were the hands of a crocodile. His movements were marked by the lizard's disconcertingly abrupt clockwork speed. His speech was thin, fluty, and dry. Henry Wimbush, schoolfellow and exact contemporary, Mr. Scogan looked far older and, at the same time, far more youthfully alive than did that gentle aristocrat with the face like a grey bowler. Mr. Scogan might look like an extinct saurian, but Gombold was altogether and essentially human. In the old-fashioned natural histories of the thirties he might have figured in a steel engraving as a type of Homo sapiens, an honour which at that time commonly fell to Lord Byron. Indeed, with more hair and less collar, Gombold would have been completely Byronic. More than Byronic, even, for Gombold was of Provencal descent, a black-haired young corsair of thirty, with flashing tees and luminous large eyes. Dennis looked at him enviously. He was jealous of his talent. If only he wrote verse, as well as Gombold painted pictures. Still more, at the moment, he envied Gombold his looks, his vitality, his easy confidence of manner. Was it surprising that Anne should like him? Like him? It might even be something worse, Dennis reflected bitterly, as he walked at Priscilla's side down the long grass terrace. Between Gombold and Mr. Scogan, a very much lowered deck-chair presented its back to the new arrivals as they advanced towards the tea-table. Gombold was leaning over it. His face moved vivaciously. He smiled, he laughed, he made quick gestures with his hands. From the depths of the chair came up a sound of soft, lazy laughter. Dennis started as he heard it. That laughter, how well he knew it, what emotions it evoked in him. He quickened his pace. In her low deck chair Anne was nearer to lying than to sitting. Her long, slender body reposed in an attitude of listlessness and indolent grace. Within its setting of light brown hair, her face had a pretty regularity that was almost doll-like. And, indeed, there were moments when she seemed nothing more than a doll, when the oval face, with its long, lashed, pale blue eyes, expressed nothing, when it was no more than a lazy mask of wax. She was Henry Wimbush's own niece. That bowler-like countenance was one of the Wimbush heirlooms. It ran in the family, appearing in its female members as a blank, dull face. But across this dollish mask, like a gay melody dancing over an unchanging fundamental bass, passed Anne's other inheritance. Quick laughter, light, ironic amusement, and the changing expression of many moods. She was smiling now as Dennis looked down at her. Her cat's smile, he called it, for no very good reason. The mouth was compressed, and on either side of it two tiny wrinkles had formed themselves in her cheeks. An infinity of slightly malicious amusement lurked in those little folds, in the puckers above the half-closed eyes, in the eyes themselves, bright and laughing between the narrowed lids. The preliminary greeting spoken, Dennis found an empty chair between Gombold and Jenny, and sat down. "'How are you, Jenny?' he shouted at her. Jenny nodded and smiled in mysterious silence as though the subject of her health were a secret that could not be publicly divulged. 
"'How's London been since I went away?' Anne inquired from the depth of her chair. The moment had come the tremendously amusing narrative was waiting for utterance. "'Well,' said Dennis, smiling happily, "'to begin with, has Priscilla told you of our great antiquarian find?' Henry Wimbush leaned forward. The most promising of buds was nipped. "'To begin with,' said Dennis desperately, "'there was the ballet.' Last week, Mr. Wimbush went on softly and implacably, we dug up fifty yards of oaken drain-pipes, just tree-trunks with a hole bored through the middle. Very interesting indeed. Whether they were laid down by the monks in the fifteenth century, or whether— Dennis listened gloomily. Extraordinary, he said, when Mr. Wimbush had finished. Quite extraordinary. He helped himself to another slice of cake. He didn't even want to tell his tale about London now. He was damped. For some time past, Mary's grave blue eyes had been fixed upon him. "'What have you been writing lately?' she asked. "'It would be nice to have a little literary conversation.' "'Oh, verse and prose,' said Dennis, "'just verse and prose.' "'Prose?' Mr. Scogan pounced alarmingly on the word. "'You've been writing prose?' "'Yes.' "'Not a novel?' "'Yes.' "'My poor Dennis!' exclaimed Mr. Scogan. "'What about?' Dennis felt rather uncomfortable. Oh, about the usual things, you know. Of course, Mr. Scogan groaned. I'll describe the plot for you. Little Percy, the hero, was never good at games, but he was always clever. He passes through the usual public school and the usual university, and comes to London, where he lives among the artists. He is bowed down with melancholy thought. He carries the whole weight of the universe upon his shoulders. He writes a novel of dazzling brilliance. He dabbles delicately in amour and disappears, at the end of the book, into the luminous future. Dennis blushed scarlet. Mr. Scogan had described the plan of his novel with an accuracy that was appalling. He made an effort to laugh. You're entirely wrong, he said. My novel is not in the least like that. It was a heroic lie. Luckily, he reflected, only two chapters were written. He would tear them up that very evening when he unpacked. Mr. Scogan paid no attention to his denial, but went on. Why will you young men continue to write about things that are so entirely uninteresting as the mentality of adolescents and artists? Professional anthropologists might find it interesting to turn sometimes from the beliefs of the black fellow to the philosophical preoccupations of the undergraduate— but you can't expect an ordinary adult man like myself to be much moved by the story of his spiritual troubles. After all, even in England, even in Germany and Russia, there are more adults than adolescents. As for the artist, he is preoccupied with problems that are so utterly unlike those of the ordinary adult man, problems of pure aesthetics which don't so much as present themselves to people like myself, that a description of his mental processes is as boring to the ordinary reader as a piece of pure mathematics. A serious book about artists regarded as artists is unreadable, and a book about artists regarded as lovers, husbands, dipsomaniacs, heroes and the like is really not worth writing again. Jean-Christophe is the stock artist of literature, just as Professor Radium of Comic Cuts is its stock man of science. "'I'm sorry to hear I'm as uninteresting as all that,' said Gombold. "'Not at all, my dear Gombold,' Mr. Scogan hastened to explain. 
As a lover or a dipsomaniac, I've no doubt of you being a most fascinating specimen. But as a combiner of forms, you must honestly admit it, you're a bore. I entirely disagree with you, exclaimed Mary. She was somehow always out of breath when she talked, and her speech was punctuated by little gasps. I've known a great many artists, and I've always found their mentality very interesting, especially in Paris. Schuplitsky, for example. I saw a great deal of Schuplitsky in Paris this spring. Ah, but then you're an exception, Mary, you're an exception, said Mr. Scogan. You are a femme supérieure. A flush of pleasure turned Mary's face into a harvest moon. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 4 Dennis woke up next morning to find the sun shining, the sky serene. He decided to wear white flannel trousers, white flannel trousers and a black jacket with a silk shirt and his new peach-coloured tie. And what shoes? White was the obvious choice, but there was something rather pleasing about the notion of black patent leather. He lay in bed for several minutes considering the problem. Before he went down, patent leather was his final choice, he looked at himself critically in the glass. His hair might have been more golden, he reflected, as it was its yellowness had the hint of a greenish tinge in it. But his forehead was good. His forehead made up in height what his chin lacked in prominence. His nose might have been longer, but it would pass. His eyes might have been blue and not green. But his coat was very well cut and, discreetly padded, made him seem robuster than he actually was. His legs, in their white casing, were long and elegant. Satisfied, he descended the stairs. Most of the party had already finished their breakfast. He found himself alone with Jenny. "'I hope you slept well,' he said. "'Yes, isn't it lovely?' Jenny replied, giving two rapid little nods. "'But we had such awful thunderstorms last week.' Parallel straight lines, Dennis reflected, meet only at infinity. He might talk for ever of care-charmer sleep, and she of meteorology, till the end of time. Did one ever establish contact with anyone? We are all parallel straight lines. Jenny was only a little more parallel than most. They are very alarming, these thunderstorms, he said, helping himself to porridge. Don't you think so? Or are you above being frightened? No, I always go to bed in a storm. One is so much safer lying down. Why? Because, said Jenny, making a descriptive gesture, because lightning goes downwards and not flatways. When you're lying down, you're out of the current. That's very ingenious. It's true. There was a silence. Dennis finished his porridge and helped himself to bacon. For lack of anything better to say, and because Mr. Scogan's absurd phrase was for some reason running in his head, he turned to Jenny and asked, do you consider yourself a femme supérieure? He had to repeat the question several times before Jenny got the hang of it. No, she said rather indignantly, when at last she heard what Dennis was saying. Certainly not. Has anyone been suggesting that I am? 
"'No,' said Dennis. "'Mr. Scogan told Mary she was one.' "'Did he?' Jenny lowered her voice. "'Shall I tell you what I think of that man? "'I think he's slightly sinister.' Having made this pronouncement, she entered the ivory tower of her deafness and closed the door. Dennis could not induce her to say anything more, could not induce her even to listen. She just smiled at him, smiled, and occasionally nodded. Dennis went out onto the terrace to smoke his after-breakfast pipe and to read his morning paper. An hour later, when Anne came down, she found him still reading. By this time, he had got to the court circular and the forthcoming weddings. He got up to meet her as she approached, a hamadryad in white muslin, across the grass. "'Why, Dennis!' she exclaimed. "'You look perfectly sweet in your white trousers.' Dennis was dreadfully taken aback. There was no possible retort. "'You speak as though I were a child in a new frock,' he said, with a show of irritation. "'But that's how I feel about you, Dennis, dear.' "'Then you oughtn't to. "'But I can't help it. "'I'm so much older than you.' "'I like that,' he said, four years older. "'And if you do look perfectly sweet in your white trousers, "'why shouldn't I say so? "'And why did you put them on "'if you didn't think you were going to look sweet in them?' "'Let's go into the garden,' said Dennis. "'He was put out. "'The conversation had taken such a preposterous and unexpected turn.' He had planned a very different opening, in which he was to lead off with, "'You look adorable this morning,' or something of the kind. And she was to answer, "'Do I?' And then there was to be a pregnant silence. And now she had got in first with the trousers. It was provoking. His pride was hurt. That part of the garden that sloped down from the foot of the terrace to the pool had a beauty which did not depend on colour so much as on forms. It was as beautiful by moonlight as in the sun. The silver of water, the dark shapes of yew and ilex trees, remained at all hours and seasons the dominant features of the scene. It was a landscape in black and white. For colour there was the flower-garden. It lay to one side of the pool, separated from it by a huge Babylonian wall of yews. You passed through a tunnel in the hedge, you opened a wicket in a wall, and you found yourself, startlingly and suddenly, in the world of colour. The July borders blazed and flared under the sun. Within its high brick walls the garden was like a great tank of warmth and perfume and colour. Dennis held open the little iron gate for his companion. "'It's like passing from a cloister into an oriental palace,' he said, and took a deep breath of the warm flower-scented air. "'In fragrant volleys they let fly—how does it go?' Well shot, ye firemen, oh, how sweet and round your equal fires do meet, whose shrill report no ear can tell, but echoes to the eye and smell. You have a bad habit of quoting, said Anne, as I never know the context or author, I find it humiliating. Dennis apologised. It's the fault of one's education. Things somehow seem more real and vivid when one can apply somebody else's ready-made phrase about them. And then there are lots of lovely names and words, monophysite, iamblicus, pomponazzi. You bring them out triumphantly, and feel you've clinched the argument with a mere magical sound of them. That's what comes of the higher education. You may regret your education, said Anne. I'm ashamed of my lack of it. Look at those sunflowers. Aren't they magnificent? 
dark faces and golden crowns. They're the kings of Ethiopia. And I like the way the tits cling to the flowers and pick out the seeds, while the other loutish birds, grubbing dirtily for their food, look up in envy from the ground. Do they look up in envy? That's the literary touch, I'm afraid. Education again. It always comes back to that. He was silent. Anne had sat down on a bench that stood in the shade of an old apple tree. I'm listening, she said. He did not sit down, but walked backwards and forwards in front of the bench, gesticulating a little as he talked. Books, he said, books. One reads so many, and one sees so few people and so little of the world. Great thick books about the universe and the mind and ethics. You've no idea how many there are. I must have read twenty or thirty tons of them in the last five years. Twenty tons of ratiocination. Weighted with that, one's pushed out into the world. He went on walking up and down. His voice rose, fell, was silent a moment, and then talked on. He moved his hands. Sometimes he waved his arms. Anne looked and listened quietly, as though she were at a lecture. He was a nice boy, and today he looked charming. Charming! One entered the world, Dennis pursued, having ready-made ideas about everything. One had a philosophy, and tried to make life fit into it. One should have lived first, and then made one's philosophy to fit life. Life, facts, things were horribly complicated. Ideas, even the most difficult of them, deceptively simple. In the world of ideas, everything was clear. In life, all was obscure, embroiled. Was it surprising that one was miserable, horribly unhappy? Dennis came to a halt in front of the bench, and, as he asked this last question, he stretched out his arms and stood for an instant in an attitude of crucifixion, then let them fall again to his sides. My poor Dennis! Anne was touched. He was really too pathetic as he stood there in front of her in his white flannel trousers. But does one suffer about these things? It seems very extraordinary. You're like Scogan, cried Dennis bitterly. You regard me as a specimen for an anthropologist. Well, I suppose I am. No, no, she protested, and drew in her skirt with a gesture that indicated that he was to sit down beside her. He sat down. Why can't you just take things for granted and as they come, she asked. It's so much simpler. Of course it is, said Dennis, but it's a lesson to be learned gradually. There are twenty tons of ratiocination to be got rid of first. I've always taken things as they come, said Anne. It seems so obvious. One enjoys the pleasant things, avoids the nasty ones. There's nothing more to be said. Nothing for you. But then you were born a pagan. I am trying laboriously to make myself one. I can take nothing for granted. I can enjoy nothing as it comes along. Beauty, pleasure, art, women. I have to invent an excuse. A justification for everything that's delightful. Otherwise, I can't enjoy it with an easy conscience. I make up a little story about beauty and pretend that it has something to do with truth and goodness. I have to say that art is the process by which one reconstructs the divine reality out of chaos. Pleasure is one of the mystical roads to union with the infinite. The ecstasies of drinking, dancing, love-making. As for women, I am perpetually assuring myself that they're the broad highway to divinity, and to think that I'm only just beginning to see through the silliness of the whole thing. It's incredible to me that anyone should have escaped these horrors. 
"'It's still more incredible to me,' said Anne, "'that anyone should have been a victim to them. "'I should like to see myself believing "'that men are the highway to divinity.' "'The amused malice of her smile "'planted two little folds on either side of her mouth, "'and through their half-closed lids "'her eyes shone with laughter. "'What you need, Dennis, is a nice plump young wife, "'a fixed income and a little congenial but regular work.' What I need is you. That was what he ought to have retorted. That was what he wanted passionately to say. He could not say it. His desire fought against his shyness. What I need is you. Mentally he shouted the words, but not a sound issued from his lips. He looked at her despairingly. Couldn't she see what was going on inside him? Couldn't she understand? What I need is you. He would say it. He would. He would. "'I think I shall go and bathe,' said Anne. "'It's so hot.' The opportunity had passed. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 5 Mr. Wimbush had taken them to see the sights of the home farm, and now they were standing, all six of them, Henry Wimbush, Mr. Scogan, Dennis, Gombold, Anne, and Mary, by the low wall of the piggery, looking into one of the styes. "'This is a good sow,' said Henry Wimbush. She had a litter of fourteen. Fourteen, Mary echoed incredulously. She turned astonished blue eyes towards Mr. Wimbush, then let them fall onto the seething mass of élan vital that fermented in the sty. An immense sow reposed on her side in the middle of the pen. Her round black belly, fringed with a double line of dugs, presented itself to the assault of an army of small brownish-black swine. With a frantic greed they tugged at their mother's flank. The old sow stirred sometimes uneasily, or uttered a little grunt of pain. One small pig, the runt, the weakling of the litter, had been unable to secure a place at the banquet. Squealing shrilly, he ran backwards and forwards, trying to push in amongst his stronger brothers, or even to climb over their tight little black backs toward the maternal reservoir. "'There are fourteen, said Mary. You're quite right. I counted. It's extraordinary.' "'The sow next door,' Mr. Wimbush went on, has done very badly. She only had five in her litter. I shall give her another chance. If she doesn't do better next time, I shall fat her up and kill her. "'There's the boar,' he pointed towards a father's sty. "'Fine old beast, isn't he? "'But he's getting past his prime. "'He'll have to go, too.' "'How cruel!' Anne exclaimed. "'But how practical, how eminently realistic,' said Mr. Scogan. "'In this farm we have a model of sound paternal government. "'Make them breed, make them work, "'and when they're past working or breeding or begetting, slaughter them.' "'Farming seems to be mostly indecency and cruelty,' said Anne. "'With the ferrule of his walking-stick, "'Dennis began to scratch the boar's long, bristly back. "'The animal moved a little, "'so as to bring himself within easier range of the instrument "'that evoked in him such delicious sensations. "'Then he stood stock-still, "'softly grunting his contentment. "'The mud of years flaked off his sides "'in a grey, powdery scurf. "'What a pleasure it is,' said Dennis, "'to do somebody a kindness. "'I believe I enjoyed scratching this pig "'quite as much as he enjoys being scratched. 
if only one could always be kind with so little expense or trouble. A gate slammed. There was a sound of heavy footsteps. "'Morning, Rowley,' said Henry Wimbush. "'Morning, sir,' old Rowley answered. He was the most venerable of the labourers on the farm, a tall, solid man, still unbent, with grey side-whiskers and a steep, dignified profile. Grave, weighty in his manner, splendidly respectable, Rowley had the air of a great English statesman of the mid-nineteenth century. He halted on the outskirts of the group, and for a moment they all looked at the pigs in a silence that was only broken by the sound of grunting or the squelch of a sharp hoof in the mire. Rowley turned at last, slowly and ponderously and nobly, as he did everything, and addressed himself to Henry Wimbush. "'Look at them, sir,' he said, with a motion of his hand towards the wallowing swine. "'Rightly is they called pigs.' "'Rightly, indeed,' Mr. Wimbush agreed. "'I am abashed by that man,' said Mr. Scogan, as old Rowley plodded off slowly and with dignity. "'What wisdom! What judgment! What a sense of values!' Rightly are they called swine, yes, and I wish I could, with as much justice, say, rightly are we called men. They walked on towards the cowsheds and the stables of the cart-horses. Five white geese, taking the air this fine morning, even as they were doing, met them in the way. They hesitated, cackled, then, converting their lifted necks into rigid horizontal snakes, they rushed off in disorder, hissing horribly as they went. Red calves paddled in the dung and mud of a spacious yard. In another enclosure stood the bull, massive as a locomotive. He was a very calm bull, and his face wore an expression of melancholy stupidity. He gazed with reddish-brown eyes at his visitors, chewed thoughtfully at the tangible memories of an earlier meal, swallowed and regurgitated, chewed again. His tail lashed savagely from side to side. It seemed to have nothing to do with his impassive bulk. Between his short horns was a triangle of red curls, short and dense. "'Splendid animal,' said Henry Wimbush. "'Pedigree stock. But he's getting a little old, like the boar.' "'Fat him up and slaughter him,' Mr. Scogan pronounced, with a delicate old maidish precision of utterance. "'Couldn't you give the animals a little holiday from producing children?' asked Anne. "'I'm so sorry for the poor things.' Mr. Wimbush shook his head. "'Personally,' he said, "'I rather like seeing fourteen pigs grow where only one grew before. "'The spectacle of so much crude life is refreshing.' "'I'm glad to hear you say so,' Gumbold broke in warmly. "'Lots of life. That's what we want. "'I like pullulation.' Everything ought to increase and multiply as hard as it can. Gombold grew lyrical. Everybody ought to have children. Anne ought to have them. Mary ought to have them. Dozens and dozens. He emphasised his point by thumping with his walking-stick on the bull's leather flanks. Mr. Scogan ought to pass on his intelligence to little Scogans and Dennis to little Dennises. The bull turned his head to see what was happening, regarded the drumming-stick for several seconds, then turned back again, satisfied, it seemed, that nothing was happening. Sterility was odious, unnatural, a sin against life. Life, life, and still more life, the ribs of the placid bull resounded. Standing with his back against the farmyard pump, a little apart, Dennis examined the group. Gombold, 
passionate and vivacious, was its centre. The others stood around, listening, Henry Wimbush, calm and polite beneath his grey bowler. Mary, with parted lips and eyes that shone with the indignation of a convinced birth-controller. Anne looked on through half-shut eyes, smiling, and beside her stood Mr. Scogan, bolt upright in an attitude of metallic rigidity that contrasted strangely with that fluid grace of hers, which even in stillness suggested a soft movement. Gombold ceased talking, and Mary, flushed and outraged, opened her mouth to refute him. But she was too slow. Before she could utter a word, Mr. Scogan's fluty voice had pronounced the opening phrases of a discourse. There was no hope of getting so much as a word in edgeways. Mary had perforce to resign herself. "'Even your eloquence, my dear Gombold,' he was saying, "'even your eloquence must prove inadequate to reconvert the world to a belief in the delights of mere multiplication.' With the gramophone, the cinema, and the automatic pistol, the goddess of applied science has presented the world with another gift, more precious even than these, the means of dissociating love from propagation. Eros, for those who wish it, is now an entirely free god. His deplorable association with Lucina may be broken at will. In the course of the next few centuries, who knows, the world may see a more complete severance. I look forward to it optimistically. Where the great Erasmus Darwin and Miss Anna Seward, Swan of Lichfield, experimented, and, for all their scientific ardour, failed, our descendants will experiment and succeed. An impersonal generation will take the place of nature's hideous system. In vast state incubators, rows upon rows of gravid bottles will supply the world with the population it requires. The family system will disappear, society, sapped at its very base, will have to find new foundations, and Eros, beautifully and irresponsibly free, will flit like a gay butterfly from flower to flower through a sunlit world. Sounds lovely, said Anne. The distant future always does. Mary's china-blue eyes, more serious and more astonished than ever, were fixed on Mr. Scogan. Bottles, she said. Do you really think so? Bottles? End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 6 Mr. Barbecue Smith arrived in time for tea on Saturday afternoon. He was a short and corpulent man with a very large head and no neck. In his earlier middle age he had been distressed by this absence of neck, but was comforted by reading in Balzac's Louis Lambert that all the world's great men have been marked by the same peculiarity, and for a simple and obvious reason. Greatness is nothing more nor less than the harmonious functioning of the faculties of the head and heart. The shorter the neck, the more closely these two organs approach one another. Argyll, it was convincing. Mr. Barbecue Smith belonged to the old school of journalists. He sported a leonine head, with a greyish-black mane of oddly unappetising hair, brushed back from a broad but low forehead. And somehow he always seemed slightly, ever so slightly, soiled. 
In younger days he had gaily called himself a bohemian. He did so no longer. He was a teacher now, a kind of prophet. Some of his books of comfort and spiritual teaching were in their hundred and twentieth thousand. Priscilla received him with every mark of esteem. He had never been to Crome before. She showed him around the house. Mr. Barbecue Smith was full of admiration. "'So quaint, so old-world,' he kept repeating. He had a rich, rather unctuous voice. Priscilla praised his latest book. "'Splendid, I thought it was,' she said in her large, jolly way. "'I'm happy to think you found it a comfort,' said Mr. Barbecue Smith. "'Oh, tremendously! And the bit about the lotus pool, I thought that so beautiful.' "'I knew you would like that. It came to me, you know, from without.' He waved his hand to indicate the astral world. They went out into the garden for tea. Mr. Barbecue Smith was duly introduced. "'Mr. Stone is a writer, too,' said Priscilla, as she introduced Dennis. "'Indeed,' Mr. Barbecue Smith smiled benignly, and looking up at Dennis with an expression of Olympian condescension. "'And what sort of things do you write?' Dennis was furious, and, to make matters worse, he felt himself blushing hotly. Had Priscilla no sense of proportion? She was putting them in the very same category, Barbecue Smith and himself. They were both writers. They both used pen and ink. To Mr. Barbecue Smith's question he answered, Oh, nothing much, nothing, and looked away. Mr. Stone is one of our younger poets. It was Anne's voice. He scowled at her, and she smiled back exasperatingly. Excellent, excellent, said Mr. Barbecue Smith and he squeezed Dennis' arm encouragingly. The Bard's is a noble calling. As soon as tea was over, Mr. Barbecue Smith excused himself. He had to do some writing before dinner. Priscilla quite understood. The prophet retired to his chamber. Mr. Barbecue Smith came down to the drawing-room at ten to eight. He was in a good humour, and, as he descended the stairs, he smiled to himself, and rubbed his large white hands together. In the drawing-room, someone was playing softly and ramblingly on the piano. He wondered who it could be. One of the young ladies, perhaps. But no, it was only Dennis, who got up hurriedly and with some embarrassment as he came into the room. "'Do go on, do go on,' said Mr. Barbecue Smith. "'I'm very fond of music.' "'Then I couldn't possibly go on,' Dennis replied. "'I only make noises.' There was a silence. Mr. Barbecue Smith stood with his back to the hearth, warming himself at the memory of last winter's fires. He could not control his interior satisfaction, but still went on smiling to himself. At last he turned to Dennis. "'You write?' he asked, "'don't you?' "'Well, yes, a little, you know. How many words do you find you can write in an hour?' I don't think I've ever counted. Oh, you ought to, you ought to. It's most important. Dennis exercised his memory. When I'm in good form, he said, I fancy I do a twelve-hundred-word review in about four hours. But sometimes it takes much longer. Mr. Barbecue Smith nodded. Yes, three hundred words an hour at your best. He walked out into the middle of the room, turned round on his heels, and confronted Dennis again. Guess how many words I wrote this evening between five and half-past seven. I can't imagine. 
No, but you must guess. Between five and half-past seven, that's two and a half hours. Twelve hundred words, Dennis hazarded. No, no, no. Mr. Barbecue Smith's expanded face shone with gaiety. Try again. Fifteen hundred. No. I give it up, said Dennis. He found he couldn't summon up much interest in Mr. Barbecue Smith's writing. Well, I'll tell you. Three thousand eight hundred. Dennis opened his eyes. You must get a lot done in a day, he said. Mr. Barbecue Smith suddenly became extremely confidential. He pulled up a stool to the side of Dennis's armchair, sat down in it, and began to talk softly and rapidly. "'Listen to me,' he said, laying his hand on Dennis's sleeve. "'You want to make your living by writing? You're young, you're inexperienced. Let me give you a little sound advice.' "'What was the fellow going to do?' Dennis wondered. "'Give him an introduction to the editor of John O'London's Weekly, or tell him where he could sell a light middle for seven guineas?' Mr. Barbecue Smith patted his arm several times and went on. "'The secret of writing,' he said, breathing it into the young man's ear. "'The secret of writing is inspiration.' Dennis looked at him in astonishment. "'Inspiration,' Mr. Barbecue Smith repeated. "'You mean the native woodnote business?' Mr. Barbecue Smith nodded. "'Oh, then I entirely agree with you,' said Dennis. "'But what if one hasn't got inspiration?' "'That was precisely the question I was waiting for,' said Mr. Barbecue Smith. "'You ask me what one should do if one hasn't got inspiration. "'I answer, you have inspiration. "'Everyone has inspiration. "'It's simply a question of getting it to function.' "'The clock struck eight. "'There was no sign of any of the other guests. "'Everybody was always late at Crome.' "'Mr. Barbecue Smith went on. "'That's my secret,' he said. "'I give it you freely.' Dennis made a suitably grateful murmur and grimace. "'I'll help you to find your inspiration, "'because I don't like to see a nice, steady young man like you "'exhausting his vitality and wasting the best years of his life "'in a grinding intellectual labour "'that could be completely obviated by inspiration. "'I did it myself, so I know what it's like. "'Up to the time I was thirty-eight, I was a writer like you, a writer without inspiration. All I wrote I squeezed out of myself by sheer hard work. Why, in those days, I was never able to do more than six-fifty words an hour. And what's more, I often didn't sell what I wrote, he sighed. We artists, he said parenthetically, we intellectuals, aren't much appreciated here in England. Dennis wondered if there was any method, consistent, of course, with politeness, by which he could dissociate himself from Mr. Barbecue Smith's we. There was none, and besides, it was too late now, for Mr. Barbecue Smith was once more pursuing the tenor of his discourse. At thirty-eight I was a poor, struggling, tired, overworked, unknown journalist. Now, at fifty, he paused modestly, and— made a little gesture, moving his fat hands outwards, away from one another, and expanding his fingers as though in demonstration. He was exhibiting himself. Dennis thought of that advertisement of Nestle's milk. The two cats on the wall, under the moon, one black and thin, the other white, sleek and fat. Before inspiration and after. "'Inspiration has made the difference,' said Mr. Barbecue Smith solemnly. "'It came 
quite suddenly, like a gentle dew from heaven. He lifted his hand and let it fall back onto his knee to indicate the descent of the dew. It was one evening. I was writing my first little book about the conduct of life. Humble heroisms, you may have read it. It has been a comfort, at least I hope and think so, a comfort to many thousands. I was in the middle of the second chapter, and I was stuck. Fatigue, overwork. I had only written a hundred words in the last hour, and I could get no further. I sat biting the end of my pen, and looking at the electric light which hung above my table, a little above and in front of me. He indicated the position of the lamp with elaborate care. "'Have you ever looked at a bright light intently for a long time?' he asked, turning to Dennis. Dennis didn't think he had. "'You can hypnotise yourself that way,' Mr. Barbecue Smith went on. The gong sounded in a terrific crescendo from the hall. Still no sign of the others. Dennis was horribly hungry. "'That's what happened to me,' said Mr. Barbecue Smith. I was hypnotised. I lost consciousness like that. He snapped his fingers. When I came to, I found that it was past midnight, and I had written four thousand words. Four thousand, he repeated, opening his mouth very wide on the ow of thousand. Inspiration had come to me. What a very extraordinary thing, said Dennis. I was afraid of it at first. It didn't seem to me natural. I didn't feel, somehow, that it was quite right, quite fair. I might almost say, to produce a literary composition unconsciously. Besides, I was afraid I might have written nonsense. And had you written nonsense? Dennis asked. Certainly not, Mr. Barbecue Smith replied, with a trace of annoyance. Certainly not. It was admirable. Just a few spelling mistakes and slips, such as there generally are in automatic writing. But the style, the thought, all the essentials were admirable. After that, inspiration came to me regularly. I wrote the whole of Humble Heroisms like that. It was a great success, and so has everything been that I have written since. He leaned forward and jabbed at Dennis with his finger. That's my secret, he said. And that's how you could write too, if you tried, without effort, fluently, well. But how, asked Dennis, trying not to show how deeply he had been insulted by that final well by cultivating your inspiration, by getting into touch with your subconscious. Have you ever read my little book, Pipelines to the Infinite? Dennis had to confess that that was precisely one of the few, perhaps the only one, of Mr. Barbecue Smith's works he had not read. Never mind, never mind, said Mr. Barbecue Smith. It's just a little book about the connection of the subconscious with the infinite. Get into touch with the subconscious, and you're in touch with the universe. Inspiration, in fact. Do you follow me? Perfectly, perfectly, said Dennis. But don't you find that the universe sometimes sends you very irrelevant messages? I don't allow it to, Mr. Barbecue Smith replied. I canalise it, I bring it down through pipes to work the turbines of my conscious mind. Like Niagara, Dennis suggested. Some of Mr. Barbecue Smith's remarks sounded strangely like quotations. Quotations from his own works, no doubt. Precisely, like Niagara, and this is how I do it. He leaned forward, and, with a raised forefinger, marked his points as he made them, beating time, as it were, to his discourse. Before I go off into my trance, I concentrate on the subject I wish to be inspired about. Let us say I am writing about the humble heroisms. For ten minutes before I go into the trance, 
I think of nothing but orphans supporting their little brothers and sisters, of dull work well and patiently done, and I focus my mind on such great philosophical truths as the purification and uplifting of the soul by suffering, and the alchemical transformation of leaden evil into golden good. Dennis again hung up his little festoon of quotation marks. Then I pop off. Two or three hours later I wake up again and find that inspiration has done its work. Thousands of words, comforting, uplifting words, lie before me. I type them out neatly on my machine, and they are ready for the printer. It all sounds wonderfully simple, said Dennis. It is. All great and splendid and divine things of life are wonderfully simple. Quotation marks again. When I have to do my aphorisms, Mr. Barbecue Smith continued, I prelude my trance by turning over the pages of any dictionary of quotations or Shakespeare calendar that comes to hand. That sets the key, so to speak. That ensures that the universe shall come flowing in, not in a continuous rush, but in aphorismic drops. Do you see the idea? Dennis nodded. Mr. Barbecue Smith put his hand in his pocket and pulled out a notebook. I did a few in the train today, he said, turning over the pages, just dropped off into a trance in the corner of my carriage. I find the train very conducive to good work. Here they are. He cleared his throat and read, The mountain road may be steep, but the air is pure up there, and it is from the summit that one gets the view. The things that really matter happen in the heart. It was curious, Dennis reflected, the way the infinite sometimes repeated itself. Seeing is believing, yes, but believing is also seeing. If I believe in God, I see God, even in the things that seem to be evil. Mr. Barbecue Smith looked up from his notebook. That last one, he said, is particularly subtle and beautiful, don't you think? Without inspiration I could never have hit on that. He re-read the apothem with a slower and more solemn utterance. Straight from the infinite, he commented reflectively, then addressed himself to the next aphorism. The flame of a candle gives light, but it also burns. Puzzled wrinkles appeared on Mr. Barbecue Smith's forehead. I don't exactly know what that means, he said. It's very gnomic. One could apply it, of course, to the higher education, illuminating but provoking the lower classes to discontent and revolution. Yes, I suppose that's what it is, but it's gnomic, it's gnomic. He rubbed his chin thoughtfully. The gong sounded again, clamorously, it seemed imploringly. Dinner was growing cold. It roused Mr. Barbecue Smith from meditation. He turned to Dennis. You understand me now when I advise you to cultivate your inspiration. Let your subconscious work for you. Turn on the Niagara of the Infinite. There was a sound of feet on the stairs. Mr. Barbecue Smith got up, laid his hand for an instant on Dennis's shoulder, and said, No more now, another time, and remember, I rely absolutely on your discretion in this matter. There are intimate, sacred things that one doesn't wish to be generally known. Of course, said Dennis, I quite understand. End of chapter Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.